We are delighted to have uh, Dr. David Allen with us again from the Trinitarian Bible Society. And we're going to ask him now just to come and read to us from the scriptures. Let me say, first of all, it's always a great privilege to come to Duff on behalf of the Trinitarian Bible Society. And I know that whenever I come amongst the Free Presbyterian Churches of Ulster, I'm coming amongst friends. I was in your congregation last Lord's Day in Bridlington. And on Wednesday, I was with Kyle Paisley at Ulton Broad, and I'm looking forward to the next two or three weeks of ministry, mainly in the Free Presbyterian Churches of Ulster. <coughs> I'm going to turn you to the Word of God, and I'm going to read uh, from the Gospel of John, uh, starting in John chapter 7 and going on into chapter 8. John chapter 7 and verse 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, Of a truth, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the Scripture said, That Christ cometh of the seed of David, and out of the town of Bethlehem, where David was. So there was a division among the people because of him, and some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto him, Why have ye not brought him? The officers answered, Never man spake like this man. Then answered them the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knoweth not the Lord are cursed. Nicodemus saith unto them, He that came to Jesus by night, being one of them, Doth our Lord judge any man before it hear him, and know what he doeth? They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. And I just pause at that point to make this observation. The next twelve verses that we are going to read are verses which are disputed in all the modern English translations of the Holy Scriptures. The revised version of 1881, the first to make use of Westcott and Hort's corrupted Greek manuscripts, the revised version of 1881 brackets the next 12 verses from verse 53 of chapter 7 down to verse 11 of chapter 8, and make this comment, most ancient authorities omit these verses. 
The Revised Standard Version of 1953 and its daughter, the English Standard Version of 2003, puts these next 12 verses in double square brackets. And then add that the most reliable and ancient authorities do not have these verses. The New English Bible of 1960 omits these 12 verses altogether and then puts them at the end of John's Gospel after a, a big black line across the page and make this comment. This passage has no fixed place in our witnesses. Some of them do not contain it at all. The New International Version of the 1980s again either puts it in italics or puts it within brackets and makes this comment the earliest and most reliable manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have these verses what all these modern english translations fail to tell us is that there are now in existence 940 greek manuscripts of the gospel of john and this passage is in all of them, bar three. Codex Vaticanus, and that should raise suspicions. Codex Sinaiticus, and a minuscule manuscript number 634. My friends, it seems to me that what these modern translations are doing, they are repeating the devil's old lie first uttered in the garden. Yea, hath God said. Your minister prayed that we are to be those who tremble at the word of God. It seems to me that the word of God has to tremble before these modern versions, questioning the authority, the all-sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures of Truth. Be assured, my friends, that these verses are part and parcel of the word of God. They are the inspired, the infallible, the pure word of God, and all modern Translation should be rejected on the basis of these 12 verses alone. That's right. And so we read from verse 53, the inspired, the infallible, the pure word of God. Amen. Verse 53, and every man went unto his own house. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again into the temple. And all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground, and they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. 
When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go, and sin no more. Amen. Let me just say that I've left copies of our quarterly record uh, on the table outside. Please help yourself to those and update yourself on some aspects of the work of the Trinitarian Bible Society. Since I was with you last March, we have completed several more translation projects, including the Shona New Testament for Zimbabwe, the Thadu New Testament for Northeast India on the border of Bangladesh, the Norwegian Bible, the Spanish New Testament, the Mongolian New Testament. God willing, the Farsi Bible will be completed early part of this year by our dear friend Puyan Mushaki. And we are working on another 37 translation projects as I speak. So do please update yourself and some aspect of those from our quarterly record. But I want to turn you now to the Word of God and turn you in particular to John chapter 8, this tremendous passage where we have this account of the woman taken in adultery. And I want to turn you to the question uh, that is posed in verse 5, or verses 4 and 5. They, that is the scribes and the Pharisees, say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? Let us pray. Almighty eternal God, as we now turn to the Holy Scriptures of Truth, we know that these things are spiritually discerned. We need their help. The preacher needs the unction of the Holy Spirit to rest upon him. The congregation need that illumination of the Holy Spirit to give us understanding of the things of God. Oh, blessed Spirit of God, come and make this time a blessed time in thy presence. Show us more of Christ, we beseech thee, and speak to each and every heart at the very point of our need, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Very simply this morning, I want first of all to set the scene before you as we have it here in chapter 8. And then having set the scene, secondly, we shall look at the sinner. And then thirdly, we shall look at the Saviour and the salvation. But let me first of all try to set the scene before you. I began our reading in chapter 7. Deliberately so, because chapter 7 we have described for us the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was one of those three great feasts which every Jewish male was required to attend. It was held between the 15th and the 22nd of the Jewish month Tisri, equivalent to the third and fourth week of September and the first and second week of October. That would be Tisri. The first and the last days of that feast were extra Sabbath days. They were known as days of holy convocation. Of course, the Feast of Tabernacles celebrated that tent life 
of Israel during those 40 years of wilderness wanderings. But by the time of our Lord, it had become a festival for thanksgiving for the ingathering of the harvest. During the period of the feast, everyone would live in temporary booths or, or shelters made of living twigs, so that upon every open space, upon every flat rooftop, these temporary booths or shelters were erected. On each of the seven feast days, the priests went out with music and with the choir of the Levites to draw water in a golden vessel from the springs of Siloam. And this water was then poured out at the time of the evening offering as a libation on the west side of the altar. On the evening of the first day, two huge beacon fires were lit, and so large were these beacon fires, they illuminated much of the city of Jerusalem. And men with flaming torches in hand danced in the court, and there was music, until the temple gates were closed. And the Lord Jesus Christ was in Jerusalem for the feast of the tabernacles. And he had been into the temple, and he had been teaching the people. And then, as he had gone into the temple and taught, the people, they were astonished, they, they were amazed at the authority that he had in the things of God. They were amazed at the wonderful words that came forth from his lips, the wisdom that he had. Ah, but the Pharisees and the scribes, they had sent their men to arrest him. But on that last day of the feast, our, our Lord Jesus Christ stood in the midst of the feast and he made that heart-rending cry, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And some as they heard those words, those gracious words that came forth from his lips, some as they heard it, they thought he was that prophet spoken of of old. Others thought he was the Christ. But others thought he was a deceiver. And the officers who had been sent to arrest him, they had been unable to lay one hand upon him, and they had to return to their masters, the scribes and the Pharisees, and confess, never man spake like this man. And on that last evening, we read these significant words in verse 53, and every man went unto his own house. Significant words, because the Saviour had no house. The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. He who was rich beyond all splendor for our sakes became poor. And we read that our Lord left that illuminated city of Jerusalem he crossed the brook Kidron and went to the Mount of Olives to spend the night in quiet and meditative solitude with his heavenly Father. 
But the next morning he is back in the temple and it is early in the morning and he is once more teaching the people when suddenly the scribes and the Pharisees burst into the temple. Into the temple courts and unceremoniously they drag before Christ a woman whom they had caught in the very act of adultery. And they saw in this woman a way of ensnaring Christ, of trapping him. Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? They had set the trap. There seemed to be no possible escape for him now. They wanted him dead. And this trap would ensure his death. You see, whichever way he answered, they thought it would lead to his death, my execution. You see, if on the one hand he had condemned her, and insisted that according to the law of Moses she should be stoned to death, these scribes and these Pharisees, they would have reported him to the Roman authorities. Because he would have been usurping the right of the Roman governor. And this was an act of, of treachery. And he would be tried as a traitor and executed. But if, on the other hand, he had dismissed this woman, they would have charged him with heresy. They would have reported him to the Jewish Sanhedrin, teaching that the Lord of Moses no longer applied, and this too would be punishable by death. They had brought this adulterous woman to Christ, not because they were shocked at her conduct, as they ought to have been, not because they were grieved that God's holy law had been broken, they would use this woman and they would exploit her sin to further their own wicked and murderous designs toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Incidentally, we ought to ask, where was the man? Because according to the law of Moses, the man and the woman should have been brought. So where was the man? And who was the man? But nevertheless, let me suggest the very question that they asked, in order that they might tempt him, in order that they might accuse him, the very question of verse 4 and 5, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be sown, but what sayest thou? That very question brings before us in a very real and personal way the claims on the one hand of a broken law, and the workings of grace on the other hand. For it seems to me in this incident before us, we have the truth of John 1.17 brought before us. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So that's the scene. Now let's look at the sinner. She is a sinner. Of that there is no doubt. She has been taken in the very act of breaking the seventh commandment. 
And the law of Moses is quite clear. The law of Moses requires that such should be stoned to death. Twice over. Leviticus 20.10, Deuteronomy 22.22, And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. The law has been broken. The law of God has been broken. And the sentence of death is declared. So this poor woman, as far as the Lord is concerned, she is condemned and she is without hope. She stands in the presence of Christ under a broken law, guilty, vile, and helpless, and powerless to do anything about it. Condemned by the law, condemned by her conscience, condemned by her accusers, and the righteous Lord of God himself demands justice and punishment of such a sinner. My friend, this is the condition of every one of us. Whether we like it or not, that is the condition of every single one of us. We stand before a broken law. We have sinned against a holy God. And the law condemns us. And the law declares the wages of sin is death. What then is to become of the poor sinner? She is a transgressor of God's law. She is defiled. She is without hope as far as the Lord is concerned. And the law cries out, death, death. Her only hope is in mercy. But how can mercy be exercised when the sword of justice bars the way? How can the grace of God flow except by setting aside the holiness of God? This, my friends, is the dilemma of the ages. How can man be just with God? How can such a hell-deserving sinner that you see standing in the pulpit before you this morning, how can this sinful wretch of humanity be just before God? Oh, we have a sinner in this woman, a guilty sinner, a sinner who can in no wise clear herself. The Lord of a thrice holy God cries out against her, the law which she had broken, and the penalty of that broken law is death. And her enemies bring her before Christ and they accuse her to his face. Such is the sinner on the Lord of God. You remember how the apostle puts it. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. So the scene. The sinner. And as I have described this woman there in John chapter 8 this morning, I have been describing some of my hearers outside of Christ this morning are. What is to become of you, my friend? How can you ever be just before God? How can you ever be accepted before a holy God? 
Now let us look, thirdly, at the salvation. The law condemns her, but thank God she is in the presence of the one who had come to seek and to save that which was lost. Yes, the law condemns her, but thank God grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. True, the law condemns. True, the law commands that she be put to death. But what sayest thou? What a glorious contrast. The law commands, but what sayest thou? The law which is holy and just and true and righteous says death. But what sayest thou? Canst thou say live when the law says die? Canst thou pardon when the law condemns? The law was given by Moses. But what sayest thou? And notice how our Lord responds. Uh, first of all, he responds in a very mysterious way. You see, in answer to that question, what sayest thou? Notice what our Lord does in verse 6. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. At first he said nothing. He stoops down. With his finger he begins to write in the dust of the earth. And then, when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. He stooped down. He writes in the ground. Oh, oh, what mystery. Why did our Lord write in the dust of the earth? Surely our Lord was telling them very clearly, very pointedly, that this is not the first time that God wrote with his finger. They remind him about the law of Moses. But he reminds them it wasn't the finger of Moses that wrote the law. It was the finger of God. He gave unto Moses when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai two tables of testimony, tables of stone written with the finger of God. It was God who wrote with his finger those ten commandments. It was God who gave those ten commandments to Moses. But Moses didn't write them. It was the finger of God. The very same finger that is now writing in the dust of the earth. And oh, what revelation. Because he turns to them. He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. But these were the Pharisees. These were the holier than thou people. These were the first that believed in sinless perfection. But our Lord says to them, He that is without sin among you, 
Let him first cast a stone at her. That is revelation. And then a second time. Our Lord stoops down and writes with his finger in the dust of the earth. What is the significance of this? There is nothing superfluous in my Bible. We believe in the verbal inspiration of Holy Scripture, that the very words inspired of God. So why do we now read for a second time our Lord stoops down and with his finger writes in the dust of the earth? What is the significance of this? You remember what happened when Moses came down the mount with those tables of testimony. You remember what happened. He saw them worshipping the golden calf. And he dashed them to the ground and they were broken. No sooner had the law been given than they are broken in pieces. And what happens? God very graciously, for a second time, writes with his finger and gives the law a second time to his servant Moses. And what happens to that second tablet of stone, given that second time, written the second time by the finger of God. What happens to it? It is taken into the ark, into the Holy of Holies. Placed in the ark, covered by the mercy seat, the golden cherubims gaze down upon it. And the Lord is covered by the mercy seat. And blood is sprinkled upon the mercy seat. In other words... Our Lord reminds them as he writes that second time that when Moses received the law that second time it was placed in the ark, covered with the mercy seat, covered with the blood of sprinkling. And notice now there was conviction. And they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one beginning at the eldest even unto the last and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. What was it? What was it that so convicted them? That beginning at the eldest down to the least, they, they leave the presence of Christ. What was it that our Lord wrote in the dust of the earth? And there has been much speculation as to exactly what it was our Lord wrote. Some... Commentators believe that he wrote those two verses that I've already referred to, Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22. The adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. But I'm not convinced by that reasoning. Some also suggest that perhaps he was uh, writing down those words that we come across in the book of Numbers, uh, the trial for jealousy. In, in Numbers 5, where a man has suspected his wife of having committed adultery, and so he takes her to the priest. And in Numbers 5, verse 17, we read, And the priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel, and of the dust that is in the floor of the tabernacle, the priest shall take and put it into the water, uh, some commentators suggest that perhaps he was writing down that Numbers 5 verse 70, the trial of adultery. But again, I, I'm not convinced by that reasoning either. Others suggest, well, 
Could it be that there were words like those that appeared on the plastered wall, Mine, mine, tekel, you farsing? Thou art weighed in the balances, and art found wanting, and surely that would have been appropriate for these scribes and Pharisees. But I'm not convinced by that either. I, I believe Scripture is its own interpreter. Uh, and the key to the whole, I think, is verse 37 of chapter 7. Yes. In chapter 7 and verse 37, In that last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, Out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. I suggest to you, my friends, that is the key that unlocks the mystery as to what it was that our Lord wrote. Let's take that as the key. And let us find a lock to put that key into. And you will find the lock in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 13. So taking John chapter 7 and verse 37, we now put it here into Jeremiah 17 verse 13. O Lord... The hope of Israel, listen, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed. And they that depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth in me, as the scripture says, but they wouldn't come. The scribes and the Pharisees would not come. They would not come to him and drink. They would rather put him to death. And I believe that the Lord, as he stoops down and writes in the dust of the earth, either writes down Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 13, or he writes the names of those Pharisees and scribes in the dust of the earth in fulfillment of Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 13. And they are convicted. And they depart from the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, how sad, how sad. Here are men convicted, but not converted. And they go out from the presence of Christ. <coughs> How many times have I preached and others preached. And seen men and women and children convicted. And they go out from the presence of Christ. How tragic. And Jesus was left alone. And the woman standing in the midst. And our Lord turns to the woman. Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, no man, Lord. You see what our Lord has now done. He has rendered the law of God powerless to touch this woman. 
You say, how has he done that? He has done it in two ways. First of all, according to Deuteronomy 19 and verse 15, the law requires that there be a minimum of two and preferably at least three witnesses before the sentence of the law can be carried out. There are not three. And there are not two. Not even one. Not a witness is left to testify against the law. Uh, th this woman. And the second way in which he has done it is this, that according to Deuteronomy 17 and verse 7, at least one of those witnesses must be instrumental in carrying out the death sentence. But there are no witnesses left. There is none to condemn the woman, none to testify against her. He has rendered the law powerless to touch her. And he turns... To the woman, hath no man condemned thee? She said, no man, Lord. This is not a mere act of courtesy on her part. There is a note here of adoration. She has seen, she has witnessed amazing things. She has felt her sin. But she now feels that she's in the presence of a loving saviour. No man, Lord. And our Lord turns to her and says to her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. My dear friends, what a wonderful picture this is of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done upon Calvary's cross. He has rendered the law powerless to touch those who believe in him. The law would not be set aside. The law will be fully vindicated. Because when our Lord stooped down that second time and wrote with his finger in the dust of the earth, he was signifying that the broken law would be covered by the mercy seat and the mercy seat would have the shed blood sprinkled upon it. And there upon the cross at Calvary as the Father laid upon his sinless Son the iniquity of us all, he would deal with sin, with our sin. The holiness of God would be magnified. As the Lord Jesus Christ bore our sins in his own body on the tree. He bore the wrath of a thrice holy God that you and I deserved. Twas he who cried out in that agony of dereliction, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Twas he who cried out, I thirst. My friends, do you realize that is the cry of the damned in hell? And Jesus cried, I thirst, that you and I might take of the water of life freely. He was forsaken of God that you and I might never be forsaken. The claims of a broken law are fully met in the death of Jesus Christ who covers his own law with his own precious blood Amen. and sheds that precious blood to redeem such sinners as you and I to himself. 
and to cleanse us from all iniquity. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. This woman was brought before Christ, condemned by a broken law, condemned by her own conscience, condemned by her accusers, but she hears at the end those wonderful words of divine absolution, not the absolution given by some worldly priest, the only absolution that matters, the absolution of heaven itself. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Perhaps, my friend, you came to this meeting this morning somewhat like this woman, conscious of your sin. Condemned by your conscience. Condemned by the Lord of God. My prayer is that you might leave this meeting this morning as that woman left the presence of Christ. Knowing that her sins had all been forgiven. Blotted out by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That precious blood which covers the claims of the broken law. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? Amen.